Hello and welcome to the podcast version of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time for the Business Week ended 22nd July 2022. This is Ian Haydock. This week, Novo Obesity Drugs in US Cost Effectiveness Spotlight, Biogen's Growth Challenges, Novartis's View on Large M&A, Pharma's Q2 Outlook, and MSD on the Gabriel. Novo Nordisk's high-growth obesity drugs, Wagovi and Saxenda, do not meet commonly used U.S. cost-effectiveness benchmarks at current prices, according to draft evidence report from the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, or ICER. Jessica Mell writes the review found two other more affordable but less used obesity drugs cost-effective at current prices, Vivas's Kismia, and Carax Pharmaceuticals, Contrave. ICER acknowledged that greater weight loss occurred with Wagovi and Kismia than with the other two drugs. ICER said although few serious harms were noted for all the interventions, semaglutide may have lower rates of discontinuation and, along with liraglutide, may have additional cardiovascular benefits that extend beyond weight loss effects. Although a few serious harms were noted for all the interventions, semaglutide, which is Wagovi, may have lower rates of discontinuation and, along with liraglutide, or Saxenda, may have additional cardiovascular benefits that extend beyond weight loss effects, ICER said. ICER reviewed the cost-effectiveness of the four medications approved in the US for obesity, Wagovi and Saxenda are both subcutaneously administered GLP-1 receptor agonists that are also approved at different doses and under the different respective brand names Ozempic and Victoza for diabetes. Kismia and Contrave are both oral medications. The biologic drugs cost substantially more than the oral drugs. The costs of the treatments that ICER modelled include list prices offset by rebates, ranging from a high of $13,618 annually at year one for semaglutide to a low of $1,355 annually for Kismia. At that price, ICER concluded that only 3.9% of eligible patients could receive treatment with semaglutide within five years, assuming 20% uptake each year, without crossing the ICER potential budget impact threshold of $777 million per year. In contrast, at a price of $5,300 annually, 28.5% of eligible patients could receive treatment within five years without crossing the budget impact threshold. The significant population of overweight patients that could qualify for treatment under the drug's labelling influences those figures. The modest percentages were primarily driven by the large population eligible for treatment with semaglutide, ICER said. Bogovi and Saxenda together generated about $1.14 billion in 2020, which was growth of 50% over 2021. Biogen's revenue is sinking and its next opportunity to right the ship is the ASI-partnered Lacanimab. However, the idea that it can steer the company toward major revenue growth with an amyloid-targeting therapy for Alzheimer's disease after the spectacular demise of Aduhelm and multiple other recent setbacks may not float with investors. 
Mandy Daxon writes that executives spent much of Biogen's conference call to discuss the Q2 results, answering questions about lecanemab and the research and development pipeline, from which the company recently purged three drug candidates. One topic that did not come up during the call, however, was Biogen's disclosure that it will spend $900 million to settle a whistleblower lawsuit dating from 2015. The plaintiff in that lawsuit, Michael Bordoniak, who's a former Biogen employee, alleged Biogen paid kickbacks to doctors so that they would prescribe the company's multiple sclerosis drugs rather than switch MS patients to newer medicines. The company said the agreement in principle does not include any admission of liability and is subject to the negotiation of final settlement agreements and documents. Biogen and Azi have now gone back to the FDA seeking accelerated approval for a second amyloid antibody, which is lecanemab, and the agency accepted the company's BLA for priority review and set a 6th January 2023 action date. Biogen's interim head of R&D, Priya Singhal, said during the Q2 call that so far the FDA has not mentioned the need for an advisory committee meeting. What's different this time around is that Biogen and Azi plan to report results from the Phase 3 Clarity AD trial for their amyloid protofibril targeting antibody in the fall of 2022, which they believe may serve as confirmatory data needed for a BLA seeking full approval of lecanemab and which Azi has said it will file during the first quarter of 2023. Biogen's revenue declined 4% in Q2 to $1.72 billion for the company's MS franchise and fell 14% for spinal muscular atrophy therapy Spinraza. With few products generating increased sales, newer MS drug Vemerity was an exception, growth is sorely needed and Biogen has seen little success in its R&D pipeline. The company said it discontinued development of BIIB-104 in the treatment of cognitive impairment associated with schizophrenia in July, after the drug failed to show clinical benefits at Phase 2. It also ended development of BIIB-078 for C9-ORF-72-associated amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, after a Phase 1 readout did not show clinical benefit. This failure followed Biogen's decision in June to give back rights to ALS candidate BIIB100, an XPO1 inhibitor licensed from Carrier Farm Therapeutics. Additionally, as part of a pipeline prioritisation exercise, Biogen has ended development of BIIB076 for Alzheimer's, which was a phase 1 anti-tau antibody licensed from Neuremune. Anyone hoping to see Novartis enter into any major M&A activity will be disappointed, according to Chief Financial Officer Harry Kirsch, who reiterated that bolt-on acquisitions are the priority. Speaking to journalists as the Swiss major unveiled a decent set of financials for the second quarter, which saw sales dip by 1% to $12.78 billion due to currency impacts, Kirsch outlined Novartis's capital allocation priorities And number one is investing organically into our business, he said. Our R&D investment of roughly $9 billion annually is testimony to that. Second, Kevin Grogan writes, is growing the dividend. $7.5 billion was paid out to shareholders earlier this year, he noted, while third is M&A. However, we are not after large M&A, as we see that as usually very distracting, especially for companies with large pipelines. 
It usually looks good on paper, but in reality, I would say two-thirds of mega-mergers fail, Kirsch claimed. Bolt-ons to strengthen the pipeline are not so easy to come by, he noted, but we are always on the lookout, like probably all the other pharma companies, to see what assets would fit. Kirsch acknowledged that the overall correction of the biotech markets downwards increases the chances of deals in the $10 billion area, but even with the reduced prices, there are significant premiums requested by the respective boards, he noted. Kirsch added, We need to have a very high conviction rate that we will have a great return for shareholders, and so these opportunities are rare. Some observers expected the world's biggest pharma companies to launch an acquisition spree, given that some, although not Novartis, have benefited from strong sales of COVID-19 vaccines and therapies, but that has not materialised. The pharma industry is always cash-rich, Kirsch noted, stressing that large deals are not on the cards and we are completely focused on bolt-on M&A. Looking at the business on a wider scale, Kirsch addressed growing concerns about the prospect of a global recession, noting that usually the pharma and generics sector are quite robust. When market conditions get choppy, pharmaceutical manufacturers usually float above the fray. But the second quarter of 2022 has certainly put the industry's standard stability to the test. The macro environment has delivered one volatile punch after another. Inflation, supply constraints, labour shortages, rising US interest rates, a prolonged military conflict in Ukraine, and a pandemic that continues to disrupt communities and business operations. Amidst this turmoil, Jessica Merrill writes, drug makers are beginning to report second quarter sales and earnings, and the world's biggest pharma companies are generally expected to deliver modest growth, despite various uncertainties and challenges. Investors will be anxious to hear more about how drug makers are executing on new drug launches, pipeline advancements, and focused business strategies while navigating the disruptive macro trends. In Big Pharma's favour are an array of dependable brands that continue to deliver growth on blockbuster-sized sales. Products like Merck & Co's Keytruder, Pfizer and Bristol-Myers Squibb's Eliquis, and Novartis's Cosentix. In addition, there is top-line revenue bump coming from various vaccines and treatments for COVID-19. Pfizer is the big winner there with both the vaccine Comirnaty and antiviral Paxlovid. But others, like Moderna and Pfizer's partner BioNTech, have also benefited. Few big sellers are going off patent until 2023, after which a steady stream of big exclusivity losses will hit the sector, starting with AbbVie's Humira and J&J's Stellara, and running through the latter half of the decade. While big pharma manufacturers are not expected to announce any big disruptions to their business operations, The second quarter financial reports may not deliver much in the way of positive surprises as drug makers stick to executing on fundamentals and meeting sales and earnings guidance. Analysts generally agree Merck & Co. appears best positioned to impress investors with a better-than-expected quarter, driven by strong growth for Keytruda and Gardasil, but foreign exchange is also expected to be a complicating headwind for US pharma companies due to the strengthening US dollar which is offsetting some growth. Commentary on M&A is always a highlight during sales and earnings season, both for biotech investors who are eager to see the pace of business development pick up momentum and pump energy back into biotech stocks, 
and for pharma investors looking for clarity on how large pharma firms intend to sustain growth into the latter part of the decade. The expectation was that it would be a busy year for biopharma M&A this year, but the activity hasn't materialised the way some have expected, partly because of the ongoing market volatility and uncertain macroeconomic factors. That could change, however, and Merkinco is rumoured to be in late-stage discussions to buy cancer specialist Seijin in a deal that could represent the largest M&A play of the year so far. Finally, Pfizer's Paxlovid may be in the spotlight as a star antiviral for COVID-19. But beyond the headlines, Merkin Co.'s Legevrio is making strong headway, at least in some parts of the world, and there's more to come, a senior executive of the company has indicated. David Peacock, who's president Asia-Pacific at MSD, as Merck is known outside North America, noted that while Paxlovid has received the lion's share of public attention, a lot probably comes down to its first clinical data set that was shared with the world, which at the time was seen to be superior to Ligevrio's initial results. However, in the actual clinical utility, the story is actually quite different. In different parts of the world, Ligevrio is actually dominant. This is true in much of Asia-Pacific, whether that be in Japan, Hong Kong, Australia, and a lot of that comes down to clinical practice, Peacock said in an interview with Scripps' Andrew Gangurdi. He explained that the population being treated often tend to be at higher risk and therefore likely to be on multiple medications. The Gavrio, developed with Ridgeback Biotherapeutics, does not have significant drug-to-drug interactions unlike ritonavir, a key component of Paxlovid that comes with certain restrictions. So there will be an enormous need, predicted Peacock. Legevrio recently hit a milestone with over 1 million patients globally having received the antiviral. That doesn't include molipiravir versions available via the non-exclusive voluntary licensing agreements with several leading Indian generic manufacturers or the licensing agreement with the medicines patent pool to expand access for molipiravir in 105 low- and middle-income countries following regulatory approval. On suggestions in some quarters that the voluntary licensing deals are driven in part to avoid high-decibel patent litigation or compulsory licensing efforts, amid a raging pandemic. Peacock said that at the end of the day, what the world needed was actual supply. Academic arguments needed to be put to the side in the midst of a crisis, he reasoned. People may argue that we were protecting certain markets from broader supply, etc. That's an understandable consequence. But that's why we leveraged our own internal capacity, he explained. The company focused its efforts on those markets that we knew had the capability to pay, and ultimately would be getting a cost-effective price. It's not that we were setting monopolistic prices, he said. We engaged with all these regulators the same way we do with all of our products, and they pay the price that they believe is fair. MSD remains confident that Molipiravir's mechanism of action will work against variants that are yet to come. While that obviously needs to be proven, so far the company hasn't seen any change in the efficacy profile with different variants. That's all for this week. Many thanks for listening. These stories are all linked in the article accompanying this podcast and form just a fraction of the content published in Script last week. Log in to access all of this or take a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.